Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my chat with Dr. Paul Offit on You Bet Your Life. First, I want to remind you to check out booksonpod.com. While there, you can sort through past shows by episode number, book title, author's last name, or sort by category. For instance, select the current events in politics, history, or science and medicine category for episode number 125 with Gerald Posner on Pharma. This is Gerald Posner, author of Pharma. Greed Lies in the Poisoning of America, and you're listening to Books on Pod with Trey Elling. Hello, readers. Dr. Paul Offit is an attending physician in the Division of Infectious Diseases and the director of the Vaccine Education Center at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, a professor of vaccinology and pediatrics at the University of Pennsylvania, and the author of nine books. The newest is titled, You Bet Your Life, From Blood Transfusions to Mass Vaccination, The Long and Risky History of Medical Innovation. Paul, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? Doing good. Doing good. I mean, Eagles, you know, beat uh, Denver on Sunday. So, you know, life seems fair for a minute. You know what? It's been a, uh, a tough couple of years since that Super Bowl championship. So you take any win you can get in the NFL. Now, we are not here to talk football today, necessarily. <laughs> We're here to talk about your very entertaining book that came out recently called You Bet Your Life. And I got to say, I was blown away by you just going back and looking at some medical procedures that are commonly thought of as just things that can happen in this day and age. But most, if not all, medical procedures did start with some hiccups and in some cases hiccups that cost lives. It was a fascinating read. What was your goal with this book when you started writing it, Paul? To try and get people to understand that there's always a learning curve when it comes to medical innovations right up to the present time. Uh, so that people have a realistic expectation of how things are going to play out. I mean, you can see it now with, you know, we, we identified, you know, the SARS-CoV-2 virus in January of last year. Um, we sequenced the virus and then we started to try and make a vaccine. And, you know, there were several companies that stepped forward to do it. And what worried me in, in that whole discussion early on was you heard some of the CEOs of these companies um, when they had done only phase one trials, just, you know, 15 people, 25 people, 30 people, and they would start talking about how they could make billions of doses. And, you know, you're, you're thinking, you know, humility. I mean, if there's anything that, that you learn from these stories, these nine stories about medical innovations that have caused us to live 30 years longer than we did 100 years ago, is that there is always a human price to pay for knowledge, as there's been true here. I mean, who would have ever predicted myocarditis? you know, heart inflammation as a, as a uh, consequence of mRNA vaccines or these, you know, severe clotting, occasionally cl fatal clotting disorders associated with J&J's vaccine. Be humble. Be open to the fact that you're going to learn things you don't know now that you wish you knew now. And that, that's what uh, that's what this is about, getting people to have a realistic understanding of how medical innovations work. Everybody thinks the same thing, right? I'll, you know what? I'll do it when, when the learning curve is over. It's never over. Hmm. Chapter one is on heart transplants. Heart transplants require two beating hearts, obviously, meaning the donor must technically be alive. Now, brain death wasn't internationally defined until 1968, but human-to-human -human heart transplants began the year before. Did any ethical issues arrive during this gap where heart transplants were happening, but they hadn't defined brain death just yet? You know, I think it's interesting that the, you know, the person who was most famous for doing heart transplants was a South African surgeon named Christian Bernard, because the, the, the rules about uh, transplantation were looser there in terms of uh, how you could, could, how you could take a heart. And so, um, and so he, although he was not the most skilled 
uh, of the cardiovascular surgeons. Uh, there was another guy named Norman Shumway who really should have been the first to do the heart transplant. It was him. He was very aggressive. He was in a country that allowed for that. Um, the only thing you can say in his uh, defense, I guess, is that um, he he certainly took a lot of bows after he did that. He was feted. He, you know, Gina Lola Brigida became his girlfriend. I mean, he visited the Pope. He visited presidents. He became uh, you know, just an international celebrity, even though his the heart transplant patient lived for about 18 days. And the reason that that, that heart transplant patient, the first human to human heart transplant transplantation died was because um, really Christian Barnard misdiagnosed him. What, what, what this man had, a man named Louis Washkansky, was he had a bacterial pneumonia. Um, Barnard thought that, that that what he was really going through was rejection. And so he increased his immune suppressive therapy, which only made his bacterial pneumonia worse and ultimately hastened his death. So, um, you know, again, uh, you know, you learn while, while doing it. But the thing that's most interesting to me about the heart transplant story is that then heart transplants took off. I mean, country after country set up heart transplant programs. And um, there were 100 different heart transplant programs. And, and then what happened was they slowly dropped off as people realized that most of these heart transplant transplant patients did, didn't live more than a few weeks. And there was a headline on the cover of, I think it was Time or Life magazine that said, Whatever happened to heart transplants? As we, we, there were still a couple of things we needed to learn that we hadn't learned yet. How did a fungus that was codenamed twenty four five fifty six change the heart transplant game in the late nineteen seventies? That's exactly right. What, what we now know is cyclosporin. I think you know it was an immune suppressive drug that was specific. In other words, it was specific for the kinds of cells that cause you to reject your heart, but not as specific for the kind of cells that help you fight bacterial infections. So it was it was selective in that way. And so that was a critical breakthrough you know, that enabled us to do heart transplants. That's exactly right. Chapter two is on blood transfusions. The first four blood transfusions between humans were actually performed in 1667 and 1668, but there were none performed for a long time after the fourth. Why? Right. So the source of, of blood for blood transfusions initially was barnyard animals. And, um, you know, it, it's uh, I think that the certainly the church weighed in on this as being something that they thought was um, an act against God. Also, remember, we hadn't this was the 1600s, so we hadn't figured out blood typing. So obviously, when you get blood from an animal, it's going to be mismatched with your blood. You're going to see that blood as foreign and you're going to make a, a so-called transfusion reaction, which means fever, high fever, shaking chills, um, darkened urine. Um, but it's interesting how, how that sort of handful of patients that got the few uh, blood transfusions then actually did fairly well. <laughs> did you know after they got past the transfusion reactions, in some ways they were better. But you're right. I think blood transfusions then went underground until we could figure out that critical fact, which is the defining of blood groups like ABO blood grouping and then RH blood grouping, so we could have at least compatible blood, human blood to human, human human to human transfusions. Blood transfusions also used to require the person receiving the blood to be sitting next to the person donating. What changed to uh, allow this to no longer be the case? Right. The problem with blood when it's outside your body is it clots. And so what they had to do was they had to take essentially the artery of someone who was sitting next to you, put a catheter in it, and then thread a catheter into, into a vein in your body. And so the pressure of the arterial blood in that other person's body could then go into, into your, you know, could then allow you to receive blood from that person. Um, it, it actually, it's as, as, 
as uh, painful as it was to do transfusions that way, the solution was actually very simple, which is that if you just added a small amount of something called sodium citrate to blood, that prevented it from clotting and allowed for what we now know as blood banking. But you're right, it, it, you had to do, it was a, clotting was a major problem, which was very easily solved. It just uh, took a while to do it. How did the rise of HIV AIDS in the early to mid 1980s affect blood transfusions? Yeah, you know, it's, it's um, you know, what I try and do in the book a little bit is go through, you know, okay, so would you do it now? Would you do it now? You, would you do a blood transfusion if you were getting it from barter yarn animals? Okay, so now we know ABO blood typing. Would you get it now? But we don't know RH, you know, the so-called RH blood typing, O positive, it's the positive part. All right, would you get it now? So now you're in the 1940s, 50s, where the, the, the blood is contaminated with viruses like hepatitis B virus, or what was originally called non-A, non-B hepatitis, because we knew it was, wasn't either of those, but we didn't know what it was. Now we know it to be hepatitis C virus. And so then you move into the late 1970s. Now you can identify those two viruses. Okay, would you get a blood transfusion now in the late 1970s? And what comes into the blood supply? HIV and, you know, the virus that causes AIDS. And that it just killed thousands of people. And, and then, you know, the canary in the coal mine, when it comes to blood transfusions, are hemophiliacs, young hemophiliacs um, and boys, because hemophilia is a boy's disease. And, you know, the, the probably the poster boy for that was a very brave boy from Indiana whose name was Ryan White, who, who really, I think, in the writing of this book, he, to me, was, was the hero because, mm. you know, at the time, the thinking was, if you've gotten AIDS, then you are you were gay. I mean, that was how you got AIDS. And and that wasn't true with him. He was a, he was dependent on blood transfusions. That's how he got it. But he was ostracized from his school and treated very badly. And, and he became really the poster boy for don't make you know, the, the, us, us a, a, an unwitting victim. I mean, we're, we're as innocent as anybody else. And, and, and including anybody who, who's gay. I mean, everybody was an innocent there. They, they, initially, they tr people tried to portray um, those who got blood transfusions and got AIDS as innocents, whereas those who engaged in sexual activity that put them at risk as not being innocent. But everybody's innocent. Nobody deserves to die from a virus. And Ryan White stood up for that. I mean, this was a boy who was wise beyond his years. Chapter three is on anesthesia. How was nationalism a hindrance to anesthesia early on? Right. It's interesting. You see some of this today, actually. But you um, so so the, the first three anesthetics were nitrous oxide, ether and chloroform. Chloroform was developed in, in Europe and therefore became sort of very popular in Europe, even though it was the um, most dangerous of those three. And Europe used chloroform much longer than we did in the United States um, because it was developed in Europe. And um, that, right. So it was sort of nationalism. You see, see that now, interestingly and surprisingly. I mean, China has their own vaccine. It's sort of a whole killed viral vaccine and that's used extensively in China and exclusively in, Ch in China. And Russia has its own vaccine, which is a replication defective um, adenovirus that we would never use in this country, actually, and then boost it again with a different replication defective adenovirus. So the, one of the types they use, we would never typically use here. Um, and then, you know, Europe was the, specifically England, was the developer of AstraZeneca's vaccine, which is much more popular in England than it is here where we don't use that vaccine. Moderna is a U.S. product. And so that's, you know, that's used here. So it, it's, it's, it's interesting how there, there remains sort of a nationalism to medical products. 
You mentioned that chloroform was dangerous, and honestly, when I first read chloroform, I, I was thinking, what, what they put in handkerchiefs before you knock somebody out to rob or murder them, and sure enough, that's part of the reason why chloroform was no longer used, because of the stigma, to go along with the danger. Uh, what did they eventually discover was wrong with ether when trying to use it as an anesthetic? Highly flammable. Actually, I, I'm a child of the 50s. I broke my arm at a track meet when I was like nine years old or so and had to go to a very small hospital in New Hampshire because that's where the track meet was. And um, I was put under with ether. I remember it. They put just a mask on my face. They just put it dropwise. They put ether dropwise on the mask, asked me to, to just breathe normally and count backward from 100. I remember sort of trailing off somewhere around 93 and was out. The problem with ether and the reason it was eliminated from all hospitals, so the ether is gone in the United States and pretty much everywhere, is that it's highly flammable. And, and um, there's, a, there's a scene in a, a two-year series show on, that was on Showtime called The Nick, which uh, stood for the Knickerbocker, this kind of uh, fictional New York City hospital in 1906. And um, they show a scene there, which when you look at it, you think that could not possibly happen. This is just pure fantasy, pure Hollywood, but it's not. And what you see is you see a surgeon who's cauterizing the wound, uh, you know, sort of with a, and, and it's that small spark then because the, the, uh, the patient is, is uh, rendered unconscious with ether, then catches fire and he catches fire. He, he completely catches fire and then falls backward and dies. That happened. That sort of thing happened. The patient would catch on fire. The doctor, the nurse would catch on fire. And so, and, you know, it's just a highly, highly flammable agent. And for that reason, it was eliminated here. You actually referenced the Nick a couple of times in this book, and it made me smile because that was such an excellent show. Clive Owen did a great job as the main doctor there, and that included with what they used back around the turn of the 20th century for local anesthetic, and that was cocaine, which was being used by a number of doctors and was something that was getting a lot of people addicted as well, not just patients, but the doctors themselves. Right, heroin also. Yeah. I mean, mean, heroin used to be prescribed to babies in the late 1800s. That's right. And it was, actually, heroin was over the counter. It was it was uh, aspirin. You had to get a prescription for uh, <laughs> because it was known to cause gastritis, inflammation, the sudden sun declining. It was known to cause bleeding, which is still true. Um, but uh, heroin, uh, there was bare aspirin and there was bare heroin. It was available in the late 1800s. And you're right. It was over the counter. And that that I think in that the uh, in that show time series, correct me if I'm wrong, but it was uh, the Clive Owen character who was great in that show um, became an addict. Um, Correct. And he, I think he was a morphine addict. And then he was trying to get off his addiction by using heroin. That's right. Yeah, he started shooting up and uh, ultimately it led to his demise as he tried to perform surgery on himself. And that, uh, unfortunately, spoiler alert for those listening right now, did not go well. Chapter five is on antibiotics. What was the elixir sulfonilamide disaster of 1937? Right, so the first broad spectrum antibiotic, the first antibiotic we had that could successfully treat pneumonia, successfully treat meningitis, successfully treat gonorrhea, and a variety of other bacterial infections was called sulfonilamide. It was a product of the German dye industry, um, and it was a wonder drug. I mean, it was the magic bullet. Um, A number of companies stepped forward to make it. Um, Usually it was in the form of a tablet or powder. But one company, the Massengill Company of Bristol, Tennessee, wanted to make a product that was also palatable for children. So it wouldn't have to be uh, taken as a, as a tablet or powder, but rather could be taken orally as a liquid. In order to suspend sulfonilamide, they used something called diethylene glycol, 
which um, which worked. It certainly made it palatable. The problem was is that even even really six or seven years before that product hit the market, um, it was known to cause at least in experimental animals essentially fatal kidney disease. It was, it was severely toxic to kidneys, and so 240 gallons of elixir sulfonilamide were distributed. Um, about 100 people died, 34 of whom were children. And it gave birth to, the year later, in 1938, the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. Which What was interesting is that, that at that time, in the, in the mid-1930s, you didn't have to prove that your product was safe. You didn't even really have to prove that your product was effective. Um, they, the, what that company had done was all legal. They had really violated nothing other than one small thing they were caught on was by using the term elixir. It implied that there was alcohol in the product, but there wasn't alcohol in the product. And so for that, they were sort of, uh, um, so slapped on the wrist for misbranding. In fact, the, the head of the company, I think E.H. Massengill, the Massengill company, which also make, makes feminine hygiene products that people today may know about, but, um, he said, we did nothing wrong. Um, even though, you know, it's his product killed 100 people, including 34 children. The, the chief chemist, a guy named Thomas Watkins, uh, he thought he did something wrong because he ended up committing suicide. Mm. Why wasn't the Massengill company held more accountable for this tragedy? They hadn't done anything wrong other than misbranding it as an elixir. There, there was no really rules governing sort of the the manufacture of, of these kinds of products. I mean, it was the wild west of American medicine. You could claim whatever you wanted. And and th- with that, um, there was now something put in place, um, the Food, Drug and Cosmetic Act, that at least held these companies to some sort of safety standard and, and, um, and efficacy standard. You know, that you had to prove that something worked and prove that it was safe and do the right kinds of experimental animal studies, which were never done with that product. Chapter six looks at vaccines. You focus on the creation of the polio vaccine in the 1930s and its administration to the public in the mid-1950s. Why? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple interesting stories in that. I mean, I'm a, as a child of the 50s, I certainly remember polio. Um, I think that the two interesting stories, one of which is actually relevant today, and I'll, I'll start with sort of today's story and how it's relevant to that. Um, so I'm on the FDA's Vaccine Advisory Committee, and we consider um, the vaccines for children. We, you know, we consider the the, uh, the 12 to 15 year old uh, uh, um, group for the Pfizer's vaccine, and, and now most recently the 5 to 11 year old. So, so when we did that, when, when we consider that, to take the 5 to 11 year old for, for as an example, um, or we'll do start with the 12 to 15 because that was first. That's a few months ago. That was a 2,400 child study, roughly one to one vaccine to placebo. So roughly 1,200 children got vaccine, 1,200 children got placebo. There were 18 cases of COVID in that study, all in the placebo group. When that vaccine is authorized under emergency use authorization for use in, in children, the 12 to 15 year old in this country, I got a lot of angry mail from parents saying 2,400 children, that's all you want to study? Here, when Pfizer did its study in adults, that was a 40,000 person study. And now you're going to approve this for, for millions and millions of children after testing only 2,400. So my response to that was, okay, I mean, you could do a 24,000 child study. So then instead of it being, which would take longer and would delay the vaccine use for children, but it would also mean that instead of having 18 cases of COVID in that, that placebo group, you'd have in theory 180. So therefore 180 children would have had to have suffered COVID, some seriously, to, to, to learn what you learned from a study of 2,400. I mean, what price knowledge? What human price knowledge? And, and the way that relates to the polio story, and this is actually the most emotional uh, aspect of this book for me, that You Bet Your Life book, was 
Um, when Jonas Salk made his polio vaccine in the 1950s, he made it by taking polio, purifying it, killing it with the chemical, uh, so taking it the polio virus, growing it up in cell culture, purifying it, and then, then inactivating it with a chemical um, formaldehyde. He then tested it in 700 children in the Pittsburgh area, found that it was safe, found that it induced an immune response, which he believed was would be protective. And he thought, great, I got it. Go talks to his wife that night, Eureka, his wife's name was Donna, I've got it. Then was what happened was there was a trial that was done of his vaccine between 1954 and 1955. That was the largest trial of a medical product in history. He didn't want to do it. He didn't want to, he didn't want to have a placebo controlled trial, knowing that some children were going to be inoculated with essentially with salt water in the mid 1950s when polio raged every summer. Nonetheless, that was what it was insisted upon being done, and that's what was done. So 420,000 children got Salk's vaccine, 200,000 children got placebo. When it was over, uh, Thomas Francis at the University of Michigan, who headed that trial, stood up at Rackham Hall uh, in front of a large crowd of, of, of reporters and said those three famous words, safe, potent, effective. So those three words were in the headline of every newspaper in this country. I mean, church bells rang out, synagogues held special prayer meetings. The Voice of America announced that over, you know, to the loudspeakers in Europe and in, in department stores in this country, everybody stopped when that announcement was made. I remember my mother cried. I remember when that happened. This was like 1955. I was four, but I remember this. Um, and so how did he know it was effective? How did Thomas Francis know that Jonas Salk's polio vaccine was effective? He knew it was effective because 16 children died of polio in that study. All of them were in the placebo group. He knew it was effective because 36 children were paralyzed in that study permanently, 34 in the placebo group. That's how he knew. What price knowledge? I mean, you have, um, I mean, I, those were first and second graders in the 1950s. I was a first and second grader in the 1950s. Those children could have lived long and fruitful lives, but for the flip of a coin. So again, when these issues come up now with say SARS-CoV-2 vaccines, COVID vaccines, what human price knowledge? One other issue in the, in the polio vaccine, which, which comes up, and actually I have to give a talk on that later this week. Um, when Jonas Salk made his vaccine, and that trial was done, five companies stepped forward to make it. One of them made it badly. Cutter Laboratories of Berkeley, California. Um, what maybe some people may know of Cutter Laboratories for its insect repellent. But in any case, the, what they did was they failed to fully inactivate Jonas Salk's vaccine, his, it, which should have been completely inactivated. And it, what, theirs wasn't. As a consequence, um, 120,000 children in this country were inadvertently inoculated with live, fully virulent polio virus. 40,000 of them developed abortive polio, meaning short-lived paralysis. 164 uh, were permanently paralyzed and 10 died. I think it was probably the worst biological disaster in this country's history. Imagine something like that happening now with a vaccine today, with that kind of mistake. It's um, it's never happened since because there were, again, things that were put in place, in this case, the Division of Biologic Standards, that would not allow something like that to happen again. But um, imagine that today. I guess considering the comparison between polio and COVID for kids is that polio was much more of a direct threat to all children 
back in the 1950s than COVID is now, where the number of deaths thankfully has been limited up to this point, and those who are suffering the worst seem to have some serious underlying condition, whether obesity or comorbidity. And when you consider the the myo and pericarditis uh, possibilities with the vaccines in younger children, it's a fascinating conversation to have with parents. I'm a parent of a seven and five year old right now. I am just drawn to uh, all the different information coming out about this on a day to day basis. So it's interesting to think about things in those terms. Yeah, that's that's the issue of the day. I mean, I actually just wrote an op-ed piece with Jeffrey, Dr. Jeffrey Gerber in our hospital in science on exactly that issue, weighing though that that risk and benefit. So, so here's what I would say. Um, first of all, to, to not to bury the lead, get your five and seven year old vaccinated. OK, now let me go to the, the actual the data. Um, so so you never know everything. The question is, do you know enough? So so what do you know? You know that just take the five to 11 year old, just that age group. Um, there have been about 2 million infections in that age group. There have been about uh, 8,300 hospitalizations. A third of those hospitalizations have resulted in an intensive care unit admission. And more than 100 of those of those 5 to 11-year-olds have died of that virus. Um, the, 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 a third of those children who were hospitalized have no other comorbidities, meaning no medical conditions that would put them at higher risk for severe disease, otherwise normal children. So you know that. Um, and while it is true that when the virus first came into this country early last year, um, children accounted for fewer than 3% of cases, today they account for about 27%. I mean, this virus, the Delta variant, has reached down into the, this younger susceptible population and started to infect them. I mean, I, you know, we all have our biases. I work in Children's Hospital Philadelphia. We have a COVID ward. It's a children's hospital. I mean, so I certainly see children in our hospital and in the intensive care unit who suffer from this virus. So, so, and you know that there's been a now for the five to 11 year old, a 2400 uh, child study showing that the vaccine was 91% effective. Also, there's a disease, sort of a post infectious phenomenon associated with SARS CoV 2 called MIS-C, this multi system inflammatory disease of children, um, which is weird, but it's, and it's unique to this virus. And it's a disease of the five to 13 year old with a peak of nine years of age. What happens is the child has a trivial infection an asymptomatic infection, a mildly symptomatic infection. And then they, they resolve that infection. A, a month later, they come back to our hospital. Um, they're not shedding virus anymore, but they're antibody positive. So they've made an immune response to the virus. They have high fever. They have lung disease. They have evidence of heart damage, liver damage, kidney damage, Miss c There's been about 5,200 cases, roughly 5,200 cases, and it is underreported. I'm sure that's underreported. And about 46 deaths or so associated with that phenomenon. Also know that the virus, SARS-CoV-2, also causes myocarditis. So it's not like, you know, there's a risk-free choice here. There's just choices to take different risks. And um, it's, uh, so so myocarditis. So myocarditis occurs in roughly one in 20,000 to as, as high as one in 10,000 vaccine recipients. Um, but for the 12, for that's for the sort of 16 to 29-year-old. For the 12 to 15-year-old, it's actually much less. And for the five to eleven year old gets a third the dose that the twelve to fifteen year old gets. So I think it will if, although may, myocarditis may occur, it will be much, much less common than it was in the older age groups. And uh, you know, this, this virus isn't going away. I mean, th- this virus will exist in the world for years, if not decades, and children grow up. And so I think that that we're gonna need to have a highly protected population for a long time. You know, we still vaccinate against polio in this country. We haven't had a polio, a case of polio in this country, not wild type natural polio in this country since, 
you know, the late 1970s. That's what's been like 50 years of not having polio, but we still vaccinate against polio because polio still exists in Afghanistan, still, still exists in Pakistan. So I think, I think you know, that the, the benefits clearly outweigh what right now are theoretical risks associated with that vaccine. You know, John Udell, who's the head of virus research at National Institutes of Health, said it best. Um, over the next few years, you're going to have two choices, which is get vaccinated or get infected. And vaccination is always the better choice. If I had a five and seven year old right now, I would inoculate them in a second. I've also seen a number of public health officials suggest that even getting vaccinated, getting infected is inevitable. And eventually the vaccine combined with the infection acquired immunity is something that will provide that most robust level of protection. Do you agree with that? Absolutely. Yeah, I think I think if you've been if you've been naturally infected, I think you've been naturally infected. You can assume that to some extent you are protected against mm-hmm. at least severe illness. You know the kind of illness that caused you to seek medical attention or go to the hospital. Um, but there's there, when, if you get a, a vaccine after you've been naturally infected, you get a tremendous boost in your immune response, and you also get a broadening of your immune response to c- include these variants of concern. So that's an easy decision. I, I know some people want to say, "Look, I don't want to, I don't want a mandated vaccine. I've already been naturally infected. I'm protected against serious illness." But you you have such a clear booster response associated with that vaccine that um, it's definitely worth it. And just to make sure that I heard you clearly, you said at the COVID pediatrics ward in Philadelphia that you are at least partially responsible for a third of the kids there don't have obesity or comorbidity issues that they're dealing with. That's right. And those are published data, not just mm-hmm. from our hospital. That, that's what we're seeing is consistent with the national trends. Interesting. Uh, chapter seven is x-rays. Before we get into the nitty gritty of the trial and error that came with x-rays being utilized in the medical field, what are x-rays, Paul? Right, so, so x-rays are a sort of beam of electromagnetic energy that is able to essentially pass through your skin, pass through your lungs, pass through, you know, and then will then uh, expose, if you have a, a, a plate, it'll expose that plate to that particular kind of electromagnetic energy. Um, it will be blocked by bone. It'll be blocked by, for example, inflammation if you have a pneumonia. Um, so, so that's, that's what x-rays are. Um, the problem with x-rays is that certainly in high concentrations and for, for long periods of time, it's cancer causing. I mean, it, it alters your DNA to the point that you can have cancer. And I think with the, the early x-ray machines, these sort of sparky, smelly, um, you know, awful kind of machines <laughs> that, that uh, put, put forth a lot of, of sort of dangerous x-rays, um, you know, the early radiologists often had cancer of their hands, cancer of their arms. They often lost fingers. I mean, there's a story I tell here where in the 1920s, where um, one of the uh, reporters goes to cover sort of a, a, a sort of an association of radiologists meeting and where they serve chicken for dinner. And very few of the radiologists could actually cut their chicken because they lost most of their fingers. And, and that was considered to be brave. You know, you were basically a martyr to your your profession. And your profession was radiology and radiologists understood that that's what happened T- today. That's not true anymore. You're at no greater risk of um, of having cancer being from being exposed to x-rays if you're a radiologist or a radio, uh, radiology technician than if you're not. But it took a while to get better and better at, uh, at, at uh, controlling these x-rays. I believe the common uh, thought is, is that if you're concerned about radiation from x-rays, you should really check out the amount of radiation you're getting on a plane flight, correct? We're living in Denver. <laughs> or, or, or living in Denver. Chapter eight is chemotherapy. 
What does mustard gas have to do with the advent of chemo? Right. So, so um, mustard gas was a um, used in as a, a weapon of war, um, but it can be it can be altered to create this sort of nitrogen mustard, which was found out sort of serendipitously, which is true of a, a number of these inventions, to actually um, uh, essentially wipe out your bone marrow which you know which is what could kill you on the other hand if you have for example a bone marrow cancer like leukemia like acute lymphoblastic leukemia you could in theory then use that as a chemotherapeutic agent and that's that's what happened so nitrogen mustard was an early chemotherapeutic agent there's another story that i tell in there that was sort of most interesting to me and surprising really was that i mean sydney farber was a god I and mean, he the dana farber cancer research institute in boston part of harvard medical school that's the farber of dana farber cancer institute and he did a lot of the really early seminal work in cancer chemotherapy one thing he did though that uh, that was surprisingly awful was um, there was a series of papers published in, in, you know, excellent journals like the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science that claimed that folic acid, which is really a growth promoter, um, had an anti-tumor effect in mice. Um, but as it turns out, it really wasn't folic acid. It was an antagonist to folic acid. But it took a while to figure that out. And so Farber actually took a handful of children, about 11 children who had leukemia, in the you know back there in the 1940s or so and and treated them with folic acid now leukemia was a death sentence in the 1950s and those children virtually never lived past a year but he took and treated them with essentially a growth promoting agent which actually significantly worsened their leukemia i mean you know these leukemic cells would burst out onto their skin their bone marrows were packed with leukemic cells um he made them worse and then then what he realized was that he needed to do the opposite of that, which is use a folic acid antagonist, um, then called aminopterin, today called methotrexate. Um, and when he realized that, that you could do that, then you had a, a much better chemotherapy agent. But the first person to receive that, the aminopterin, you know, this, this now brand new cancer chemotherapy was a man who played for the New York Yankees who wore the number three on his back. It was Babe Ruth. That was successful, the treatment of Babe Ruth? Yeah, no, certainly he lived for a little longer than he might have otherwise, but obviously he needed um, other chemotherapeutic agents as well, which would come up later. But, you know, leukemia, you know, when I was training and back in the 1970s, um, the treatment of leukemia was brutal, and many of those children didn't live very long. Now, you know, you have like 90% success rates, 95% success rates with these combination chemotherapies. And that's the product of places like St. Jude's Hospital, which did that kind of research. I wanted to get back to the COVID vaccines for just a second, Paul, if you don't mind, to finish up our conversation, because we are hearing from public health officials really across the world right now that if you've gone more than six months from receiving the mRNA vaccines, that it's time to get a booster shot. And just looking at the statistics, it looks like a winter wave of COVID is, in fact, coming. I guess my first question for you on that, considering that we are seeing places like Israel and the UK and even here in the U.S. starting to let the most immunocompromised know that you may very well need additional boosters after this third shot. What do you think the point is where boosters will no longer be necessary? And maybe is there a a sign that is letting us know that COVID is going from pandemic to endemic? Well, so, so the question is, what's the goal of this vaccine? If the goal of the vaccine is to protect against serious illness, which is really the goal of every vaccine, meaning the kind of illness that causes you to seek medical care, go to a doctor, go to a hospital, 
These vaccines do that and have continued to do that. Um, and the reason that that's true is that, that protection against serious illness is, is mediated by memory cells, immunological memory cells, specifically B cells, which then become antibody secreting cells. Memory cells are generally long lived and in some ways can increase over time. If you look at immunological studies, actually both with natural infection and with immunization, that you see that you generate high frequencies of memory cells. Consistent with that is the epidemiology of this disease, which is that for the most part, the, the protection against serious illness appears to be long lived. So if that's the goal, we're achieving that goal. But we apparently have now another goal, which is a goal we have for no other vaccine which is to try and prevent asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic infection. Now, over time, your neutralizing antibodies that are generated by this, this vaccine will decline. And with that, you'll become more susceptible to asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic infection. Now, normally we don't care. I mean, for influenza, for whooping cough, for rotavirus, um, that, those vaccines don't prevent asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic infection. What they do is they keep you out of the hospital, which is the goal. Here, we're trying to have a, a goal for which we, we apply to no other vaccine, which is to try and keep neutralizing antibodies up because they'll always fade over time. Um, and I, I, I just I sort of find I, I think if you're if you're immune compromised, certainly a third dose or even a fourth dose will, will benefit you depending on your nature of immune compromise. Obviously, it's a big word and it could it's a big range of people who are immune compromised from solid organ transplants to bone marrow transplants to people who get biologicals for rheumatoid arthritis. So it depends. There's different levels of immune compromise. And I think if you're over 70, you clearly benefit from a third dose. I think that's the data are, are pretty clear there because that it really does boost up your memory so that you you will be protected. Um, but for everybody else, I think, um, you know, protection appears to be long lived. I mean, you know, for, for example, Brett Kavanaugh, when he, he's fully vaccinated and then he gets an asymptomatic infection. And the, 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 the term that I most object to in our whole description of this vaccine is the use of the term breakthrough. Mm. That's not a breakthrough. That's a win. Brett Kavanaugh just won. He's exposed to the virus. The virus reproduces itself in his nose and throat. And so he sheds the virus. But he's he has no symptoms. That's a vaccine that's working. Similarly, you look at Lindsey Graham. I'm not sure why I'm just picking on Republicans, but they <laughs> both got this right. I mean, Lindsey Graham said, despite being fully vaccinated, he gets he's exposed to he gets COVID. He has a mild upper respiratory tract infection that includes sinusitis. And he says, and I quote, this would have been much worse if I hadn't been vaccinated. Right. That's a win. But what happened was there was an outbreak in Provincetown, Massachusetts in July that involved thousands of men getting together, being inside, celebrating July 4th, uh, many no doubt unmasked, and 79% were vaccinated. Um, of those 70, if you looked at the, those who were vaccinated, there were 346 cases of COVID in the vaccinated group. Um, most were asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic. Four of those, those uh, people went to the hospital. That's a, that's a hospitalization rate of 1.2%. That's great. That's as good as you're going to do with a vaccine. But it gave birth to the term breakthrough. And I really wish we hadn't used that term because breakthrough implies failure. And that was not a failure. Those people who had mild or asymptomatic infection because they were vaccinated won. And I, I, I just and the same thing, I think, when President Biden stood up, you know, in August and said, you know, we're going to have boosters for all available, everybody over 16 available uh, in September. He implied that two doses was not good enough, that you weren't fully protected with two doses. And you are if you argue that protection is protection against serious illness. 
but we we have sort of slipped into this. We also want protection against mild or asymptomatic illness because we're calling them breakthroughs and it's really confusing for people. So do you think that's asking for too much then that most people are okay with just those uh, first two doses of the mRNA vaccine then? I do. Hmm. That's what I think. And if you listen to the, I'm on the FDA's Vaccine Advisory Committee, if you listen to yeah. our discussion when that first came up, or you listen to the Advisory Committee for Immunization Practices, that was the theme. And, and you know, and CDC put up a slide that said you were fully vaccinated with two doses, unless you're immune compromised, in which case you really should get a third dose. And I think if you're over 70, you really should also get a third dose. But um, I don't think it, I think we're, it, it, I think we wouldn't have had that discussion. It brings up something you said earlier, if, if the number hadn't been 18. I think if the number was 30, that everybody over 30 could reasonably get a dose, I think people would be more fine with that. But the 18 to 29-year-old is at increased risk of myocarditis, you know, this heart muscle inflammation. Mm -hmm. And although it's rare, it's, 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 it's as high, as common as 1 in 5,000 to 1 in 10,000. Um, and it generally appears to be self-resolving and self-limited um, and transient. The, the, um, the fact is, is it's, it's, it was a consequence of the booster dose. I mean, it was male, second dose. Now you have a third dose, which induces an even bigger immune response in the second dose. Isn't it reasonable to conclude that the incidence of myocarditis could go up? And if that's true, then what is the benefit to that 18 to 29 year old? What's the clear benefit to that 18 to 29 year old? Because there better be one or else then the risk becomes much greater. Well, and that helps explain why a number of countries over in Europe are discouraging population under the age of 30 from getting that second Moderna booster, correct? Whether it's Sweden, France, Germany. I mean, the, the list of countries seems to be growing by the week now. Well, see, that I, I'm not sure I agree with that. I mean, if you if you if, if these, these are two dose vaccines, the mRNA vaccines are two dose vaccines. Mm -hmm. If you're going to induce the level of immunological memory cells that you and I just talked about, you need that second dose. OK, so um those countries are discouraging people from getting the under the age of 30 from getting that second Moderna vote. So you, so you, disagree, you disagree with that. With that. Yeah, because uh, first of all, remember, SARS-CoV-2 also causes myocarditis far more frequently than does the, the vaccine and also far less transiently. You're more likely to require critical care if you get SARS-CoV-2 myocarditis, especially Miss C myocarditis, than, than you get it from the vaccine. So. Again, no risk-free choice. I, th I think that's a terrible idea, actually. So, so you think that countries are making a mistake then with uh, vaccine passports requiring people to get that booster shot, regardless of age, at that six-month mark? You think that could lead to disastrous results, uh, some of which you laid out in uh, very separate situations medically, uh, just in terms of trying to push new technologies too far? I certainly don't think there has to be passports for boosters for, for that okay. third dose. Okay. Um, but I think I do think you I think you are not fully vaccinated with one dose. So you can only be fully vaccinated unless you've gotten two doses. And you think that infection acquired immunity plus one dose is good enough for people who qualify in that category? Yeah. And I really wish the CDC would weigh in on this. There's like five studies out there showing that if you've been naturally infected and you get one dose of an mRNA vaccine, that acts just like your second dose. So that should be okay. I think the problem comes with the mandates now, you know, so now with mandates, you really want to show people are fully vaccinated. If they say, well, look, I was naturally infected and I just chose to get one dose because of the data support that. So then you have to really prove that they were naturally infected so that you know that. So it becomes sort of uh, bureaucratically difficult. I'm hopeful, Paul, that at some point antibody testing comes into play. I know you just mentioned B cells and their importance in all of this, that you can test for T and B cells to see if that person still has robust immunity, however many months or years after they They've received the vaccine and or been infected. 
it's not so easy to detect, detect memory B cells. I mean, that's more of a research tool. Okay. You can certainly detect neutralizing antibodies, but neutralizing antibodies will fade and you'll still have immunological memory. So you're still pretty, that's why I tell people not to, unless they're trying to work out their dose for being immunocompromised, I, I tell people not to drive themselves crazy by getting neutralizing antibody titers, because even if they're low, they still may well be protected. Hmm. Dr. Paul Offit is an attending physician in the Division of Infectious Diseases and the director of the Vaccine Education Center at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, professor of vaccinology and pediatrics at the University of Pennsylvania, and the author of nine books. The newest is titled, You Bet Your Life, From Blood Transfusions to Mass Vaccination, The Long and Risky History of Medical Innovation. Paul, thank you for the time today, and thank you for this entertaining and informative book. Well, thank you. Thanks for asking me. I enjoyed it. Join me next time when I speak with Oscar-winning filmmaker Oliver Stone on JFK Revisited Through the Looking Glass. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. And thanks to you for hanging out. You can listen, learn, and connect for free at BooksOnPod.com. For Books on Pod, I'm Trey Elling. Good day.